I'm very interested in what I call boring startups. It's like the old topic that are not very interesting, but that makes financial services work and function. And, and, and doing that a bit of the infrastructure layer, whether it's in insurance or payment or banking, um, there is a lot of opportunities in providing a modern infrastructure for people to build on top. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. Being an effective venture capital investor in fintech requires staying on top of consumer trends. Understanding the evolving nature of the end customer can make the difference when it comes to outsized returns. A little luck never hurts either. Yanran Sher, partner at Anthemis, has been in the game a while and is paying particular interest to Generation Z and the investment opportunities that are arising out of serving this demographic. Jan joins us on the podcast to discuss why he likes investing in boring companies and where he finds these opportunities. We discuss Jan's current investments and the Anthemis portfolio and where he's looking to invest over the next few years. Jan shares my guest today on the Tearsheet Podcast. Before we continue with our program, I'd like to thank our sponsor, MX, for supporting Tearsheet's work. MX is the leading data platform for banks, credit unions, and fintechs, enabling its clients and partners to easily collect, enhance, analyze, present, and act on financial data. My name is uh, Jan Rancher. I'm a partner at Anthemis. I've been uh, with the company since 2011. Anthemis is a financial services focused venture fund, uh, venture firm, and we invest uh, in the US and Europe. Um, we've, and we've been active since uh, 2010, 2011 as a firm. Um, having a portfolio now of about 90 plus companies in the space. Um, my background, I come from a business background, I'm French. I worked uh, before joining um, Anthemis as a strategy consultant in the financial services space in Europe, the US, and uh, a little bit of the whole industry from retail banking to custody, fund administration, capital markets. How how was that transition, Jan? Going from consultant to investor, like changing hats? Yeah, I mean that. So it's a quite a, I would say interesting story. I was um, I was basically. I mean, the, the good thing about having that previous experience is, uh, although I'm a specialist at nothing, I've seen a lot of Universal Bank. Um, so having the ability to look at you know every angle of a bank uh, in in a way or another was very insightful. And uh, and then you know I've been. Involved on a personal capacity since the early days of what's called now fintech. I had the luck of be, being one of, you know, part of the people that got interested in that space early on and got to meet a few interesting startups in the U.S. connected with the founders of Entemis and ended up joining the company. And has that generalist um, perspective um, that made you, I assume, a good consultant, um, is, that, is that an asset uh, in investing? Yeah, I think I think it is. I think it is because um, just the ability to be able to understand um, the various layers at which a company operates. So I think it's one of the things that is quite specific to financial services is uh, you you always sit on top of us. I would what I would describe as a stack of either technology and balance sheet, and so you always connect it to the infrastructure level in, in a way or another. So understanding both from the, the, the consumer facing down to the deep boring infrastructure is something that's always interesting to have and applicable in many ways. 91% of mobile banking users prefer using their app over going to a physical bank branch. But it's no longer enough just to offer an app. Customers expect, demand, a really good experience. 
That's where MX comes in. Its new mobile app, Helios, helps banks and credit unions stand out in today's world of mobile banking, going beyond simple transactions and account management. Does your mobile app get thousands of five-star reviews? Does it increase your engagement and lead to higher brand loyalty and ROI? Check out Helios by MX at MX, that's the letters M and X, dot com. So from, from the infrastructure perspective, then just, just taking, I'd love to hear your, your opinion on, um, do you like investing in brands, like kind of full stack, or do you like more like infrastructure plays? We, we, we invest in both. We try to, be, um, try to be conscious of the cyclical aspect of, of things. So... And, and so for, for the, the fund that we've been actively deploying, we've been actually doing a lot more B2B since 2016 because um, we thought there was an untapped opportunity in that space and we've done more at the infrastructure level. But I think um, we might do things on the you know, distribution level as well in the future when you know, the timing seems better on, for us. Um, but we definitely, I personally... I'm very interested in what I call boring startups. It's like the old topic that are not very interesting, but that makes financial services work and function. And, and, and doing that a bit of the infrastructure layer, whether it's in insurance or payment or banking, and there is a lot of opportunities in providing a modern infrastructure for people to build on top. Can you give us some examples of those opportunities? Sure. I, I, I mean, in Europe, obviously, in Europe, we've been... Um, investing in, in a, we're investors in a company called TrueLayer. They provide the open banking API, um, the PSD2 platform, the PSD2 regulation has open, um, has effectively pushed for open banking in Europe, both on reading and uh, reading account data, but also initiating payments. And, and so we think that's a fundamental layer for more businesses to be built on and existing businesses to leverage. Um, so that's one example, but Another example would be a company in the U.S. called Trimar Technologies that's building a, a, a effectively a, a programmatic marketplace for reinsurance risk. Um, again, like not very seen, but you know, insurance reinsurance is very interesting. The reinsurance market is you know trillions of dollars of exposure that's from for the most part being traded on Excel, which is fundamentally crazy when you think about it. And so there is a lot of opportunities in making that more, I would say, capital market-like and having a better efficiency in moving capital around. So going back to, to, uh, to TrueLayer, um, yep. I guess when you approach like a big thematic uh, sort of realm of investing like PSD2, like open banking, the move to open banking, mm-hmm. like, do you take it at, the, at sort of like the thematic level and then move down to find companies there or... I, I guess what's what's your process for for identifying uh, opportunities and companies yeah. that are doing it well? We are, I mean, we, we are. We, we I like to call ourselves thesis driven investors. We we you know have a broad set of uh, thesis across financial services and every in each of the subsectors in terms of where we think change is directionally happening and pockets of opportunities in that space. And then we like to search for companies there, but we're also you know reflective on companies coming to us and adapting our thinking and and going through that process so open banking overall has been a long thesis for anthemis um we like to define that as embedded uh, you know embedded finance we think financial services are a key part of any functioning society and economy it's like the nervous system 
And so we're interested in to see how going forward finance embeds itself in multiple experiences and kind of disappears in the background. And as part of that, you know, we, the regulatory change of open banking really made it possible for, for these platforms that sit on top of bank accounts to exist. And so we were you know, very uh, happy to have you know, the team at TrueLayer work with us and, and be able to, to, take, to take it from there with them. So going back to that theme of embedded finance, it's also a theme you know, we talk a lot about on the podcast and on our website. Um, can you talk about um, sort of what's driving that, where you think that plays out? So uh, there, there, in my view, there, there is like two main angles to that. One is the technology side of things. And that's, you know, the ability for system to connect via APIs or kind of having this very easy connection layer between services and systems and, and, and organizations. And that's one of the drivers. And the other drivers is, is, is on the, the capital side is this pocket of smart capital that's allocate, trying to allocate itself to the right place. And so you have, you know, players that are on the capital side that are very interested in, you know, whether it's lending, uh, whether it's insurance to, to, to be the back end to those new platforms and, and, and have a new access to the market via this, this API layer. So I think it, for us, it's a mix of the two. It's understanding both the technology side of things, but also the capital side of things and how finance is evolving. And do you see like a future where, you know, every software provider, every SaaS has, is, has issued its own financial products? I, what issued or distributed? I think for sure there is a future where, yes, where people that provide both, I mean, SaaS platforms provide, can provide two things for financial services. They're an amazing distribution platforms. They have, you know, deep connection to their customers and have, you know, deep connection to some of their core problem. And they're also an amazing uh, providers of data and finance runs on data. So effectively, those, that's, the combi- that's the combination that makes it very likely that these platforms will become either financial services themselves or will embed financial services in their experience. Got it. And um, is blockchain underrated? Sorry, just to throw this at you. Underrated or overrated? <laughs> Hard to rate. That's a very bad answer. <laughs> yeah, uh, but as my answer, this yeah. option C is blockchain is very hard to rate. Um, this has the possibility of being very transformational. Um, how I think long-term change. You can, you can see the drivers behind blockchain to use the word as a broad definition and where it could go. And and this is there. There are the same drivers, right? It's programmatic finance with certainty and, 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 and the level of trust in systems versus organizations, how you reduce that into a short to medium change strategy or change outlook, uh, that's the big question. Um, so it's, that's my answer to hard to rate. Um, but definitely you can see like, you can see just the pattern of things that are very interesting emerging. And I, I I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, most, um, a lot of investors, a lot of um, analysts also focus on the consumer's relationship with money, particularly the, the millennial um, generation. And I know you've written recently about Gen Z, um, yep. which is a bit younger. Um, can you talk about sort of a, what you, what you found when you, when you looked at how Gen Z approaches money and, be, I guess, where the opportunities would be to service them in the future. 
Yeah, I think it's one of the things that we're very interested in right now is, is two things. One, one is this really truly first digital native generation and their relationship to money and how, is that, how it can be different from what we have. I think the example I use is that, I mean, as, you know, and I'm going to edge myself a little bit here, but I grew up like you had, you know, you received cash from your grandparents. That was pocket money was cash, right? That was, that was what you had. And you created a lot of reflex and patterns around that, you know, how heavy your wallet was, how your relationship with, with money was for the most part when you were very young driven by cash. And, 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 and Gen Z is probably the first generation that doesn't really no attachment to cash or that perception of money. So, so the first generation that's really born into social media or it's probably a bad word to use, but born into being digital first and that sees the generation above aspirationally the product they use our Venmo and other things. So it's easy to think that, you know, everything that's wrong with the world is digital and they're going to be a lost generation because of that. I think the reality is much more measured and they're much better active users of digital and leverage that in a more efficient way. And we're looking at all the patterns where they use digital and finance um, to try and have a, you know, more meaningful, life and how, how educated they are as customers into that. So we, we invested recently, for example, in a startup in, in Spain called Going, that's looking to do micro savings for that generation. It's really, you know, it's a generation that if they want to go somewhere fun in summer as a holiday, they need to start worrying about it in January um, because savings is the only way they can get access to that. Credit is very limited. And how do you create you know, an experience for them to save money, invest within their lifestyle, which is, you know, having very low transactions. So, you know, they, they launch something quite fun around, if you don't wake up on time, we're going to save 10 euros for you. Hmm. Um, and, and these kind of things that are, seems gimmicky, but when you attach it to the way people think and behave, then it, it's much more powerful. Well, that's an interesting point. And, um, and I guess I, how, are traditional financial services or even, you know, fintech, um, are they going after Gen Z yet? Or, or ha have they built products and services that sort of missed the mark? No, I, I, or my or hypothesis is that it's actually a very much unserved population. Mm -hmm. Maybe Venmo in the US is really truly going after them. In Europe, very, very little. Most of the neobanks are targeting older and more wealthy. And mm -hmm. that's, then that's the rational choice, right? They're the ideal customers. The Gen Z is always considered as a bad customer because they have solid assets and, and not so great spending. But if you look on the other side of things, the, the biggest brand, the biggest emerging brand, the biggest emerging categories are driven by that generation. Online gaming, Fortnite, other, all these phenomena are driven by that generation. So there is a kind of a disconnect that we think is interesting to explore between the perception that this is about a customer set and the fact that a lot of emerging very large companies are driven by that customer set. There's something lost there. And, and that's what we're trying to, we're very interested in exploring. And, and what about um, challenger banks in general um, from a, I guess from a business point of view and from an investment point of view, what's your view on sort of this evolution um, from sort of incumbents to this, this next generation of, of banking brands? Yeah, I think it's, I think you, you said it right. This is exactly that. It, this is the gen next generation of banking brands and a high emphasis on brands. 
Um, they do provide a better service, but ultimately there will be service, or my view, personal view is there will be service parity among you know, neobanks and some of the smart traditional bank will also provide the same level of services. So it's, it's really also a brand attachment, maybe not talked so much about, but it's they're creating new brands and new trust and new organization that people would identify with. And, and I, you know, that, that's maybe one of the most interesting things about them that is not really looked at, or it doesn't seem so much looked at. Right. Because when they, they launched, they were competing on, on, on functionality. Features. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Features. They were competing now, on features like Revolut is, mm -hmm. you know, the FX bank. Um, and they were in the beginning. And now most of the neobank have parity on FX with them for the most part, or, or even cheaper sometimes. So, but the brand is still attached to that. And I think that's, that's the evolution in a way. Well, in a way, I, and I was going to say this before when you talked about um, sort of embedded finance with banking as a service providers, as they get better, um, it, in a way, it almost ensures uh, feature parity, right? Because yeah. you can have a good provider that's going to roll that out to all of its clients. And so, yeah. How, and you how, look and, and you see that in, that in banking. That branding? Yeah, no, no, I, I don't think it's going to be all branding. But, but to your point, you see that um, we, were, we were lucky to be with Antimus involved in Simple. And it took them, you know, almost two years and a half to launch a, a new bank product because so much was to be done on the infrastructure, convincing players how to do it and figure it, basically figuring it out. And I was recently talking to a startup trying to launch a, an account for children and, and, and the go-to-market was, was going to be four months from IDs to launching the card. And, and, and that's one of the things that I think will be very important also for neobanks is that you're going to see a lot of fragmentation and emerging players happening in a market that's going to target you know, niche, whether it's like young children's, maybe specific social groups, maybe locations. Uh, and that platform infrastructure improvement, you know, almost guarantees certain set of feature parity. And what's interesting is like you look at, you look at the Anthemist portfolio and you have, you have a lot of exposure to retail banking, consumer finance, as well as business banking. Um, they're primarily European names. Like, you know, I, I know you're active on both sides of the pond. Like, how do you, how do you compare the European and U.S. markets in terms of an investment destination? The interesting thing is they are very dissimilar. <laughs> they provide different set of opportunities. And part of the reason is all the regulatory environment in a way. Um, Europe is an amazing regulatory environment for retail banking and other things with passporting and, and payment, for example, with passporting, the ability to be regulated somewhere and deploy across and you know, carry your license over. In many ways, on the consumer side, the U.S. is a very difficult market. On payment, you need to register state by state. In insurance, it's the same. Um, even in banking, it's quite difficult to operate. Um, getting a bank license is very difficult, for example. But the other side of the story is, you know, the U.S. is a fantastic capital market. Um, you know, location with, with very clear guidelines and rules, a single market very strong investment patterns and, and, and behaviors and Europe is much more fragmented. Each countries have their own specificities, behaviors and, and regulation. So there, there is definitely like an interesting thing in investing in both is you get exposure to very different behaviors and different regulatory framework for companies. So I think as we get to the end of our conversation, Jan, I'm, I'm curious to think like sort of what are the themes you're looking at now over the next you know couple of years in terms of where you're going where you're thinking about 
you know, putting your money? I mean, to give an example, I think a couple of things, we're still very excited about, you know, new risk and new asset classes um, emerging with new information. So we, and that's a very broad category. Um, but, but for example, we, we invested in a company called um, Rally Road um, in the US and they offer securities into classic cars. So mm. you can buy a piece of a Lamborghini Countach. Um, this is a market that has been growing in valuation. And, and, and that's a, for them, that's really a first step. Um, you have a lot of other different emerging asset classes that are now, you can now open to, to more broader set of users because you have more data to be able to track the assets and you have the infrastructure to be able to provide a piece of them in the market. Um, so that, that's one category that we're excited about because they're genuinely new data sets coming to market that those these new behaviors. And what do you think about um, exit potential in fintech? Like, you know, payments, obviously, that we've seen sort of a vibrant sort of merger and acquisition market. Yep. Um, like, you know, wh where do some of these companies go? Are, are they just, are, are they intending to build, long, you know, large standalone businesses? I think, uh, yes, I think there is going to be, you know, a mix of everything, acquisition, but, but, but clearly some company now have reached a stage where, I mean, emerging as an IPO is, is probably the, the, the path for them. Um, in financial services, that definitely viable. You know, a lot of these companies we've seen in payment, they're very well-known business models that are easy to understand, um, you know, create meaningful revenue very early on and, and you can drive them toward there. The, the big question mark is what move the, the big tech players are going to make in that space in coming back to our initial discussion around SaaS players, you know, becoming more and more involved in financial services, the question, in a way, the question is, what will Salesforce do? Hmm. Will they look to build? Will they look to acquire? Will they look to maybe merge with a large financial services player and how they're thinking about their strategy? And, and that's one of the, I guess, most exciting part of the coming years. And what about the social platforms like the, the Facebooks? Yeah, the Facebooks, the, you know, Facebook Libra is effectively a, a fund, right? It's a, mm -hmm. it's a money market fund and it's very much similar to the money market fund that some of the Chinese players have, have had. Um, so they're, they're interested. I think they're, I mean, the fact that Facebook announced Libra is, is an example of, I think, the pace moving forward for these companies to try and meaningfully engage in financial services. They've been, always been active. You look at Google at several projects over the year with more or less success. Um, uh, Amazon is in its way part of becoming a big financial services players, uh, but it's very early on. Um, so we'll see more and more of those engage. And, and the last piece is probably consolidation among the emerging fintech players. Um, some are growing large customer sets, some are growing different ways to monetize those customers. And you can see a path where aggregating them into larger and larger companies makes a lot of sense. Jan, it's been great talking to you today. Thanks for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me.